Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Providence Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac, Associate Advisor at Providence. So join with me today is a very special guest, Cheng Chai Sen, Providence Head of Investment. Hi Chai Sen, thank you for joining us today. Hi Isaac, great to be here. Right, so Chai Sen, while preparing for this podcast, um, I noticed that you joined Providence in 2013. So this year marks the 10th year that you are at Providence. So how have your decade-long journey been and can I call you a veteran of Providence now? Well, yeah, it has been about 10 years since I joined Providence. I remember it was late April 2013 and I joined and after that, uh, the Fed hiked interest rates or they they stopped QE or something and rates rose and um, yeah, uh, REITs fell. So that was a very interesting time to join. Uh, yeah, experience. Well, it's been a long journey for uh, the firm and how we invest. I think we have uh, made great steps to uh, being very clear on how we invest for our clients and also um, I think the results sort of speak for themselves in the last few years. Uh, it's been a lot more consistent and a lot uh, clearer how we are trying to get uh, give our clients a good investment experience. In 2013, you mentioned that REITs fell. But in 2018, you can see that we almost went into a bear and 2020 was COVID. So how do you deal with um, all these things? You know, there's always something to be concerned about. And how do you feel knowing that, okay, so uh, this year, oh, I hope it's not as uncertain as the previous year, but then, you know, there's always something that comes up. Yeah, I think um, that without that uncertainty, we wouldn't have the returns that we are uh, expecting to get because if your return is certain, then it will not be so uh, high. You know, it's the very uncertainty of... Uh, investing in businesses that um, makes investors demand a higher uh, future return so that they are compensated for the risk they take. It's all about risk and return. If you take no risk, then you cannot expect a very high return because um, if, a, if a riskless investment gave a very high return, I mean, if you think about just simple supply and demand, everybody would buy that riskless investment there'll be nobody investing in anything risky but as more and more people chase that risk-free return i mean whoever is giving you that return isn't going to say hey i'm going to give you a high return in the future they're going to bring the return down to a really really low level because everybody wants it they, they there's no reason for them to pay you a high uh, return if everybody wants to give them capital so you know if you think about it that's just what uh, market forces are and that's market pricing uh, and uh, sort of equilibrium theory you know the market will sort of price goods price uh, investing uh, appropriately such that a high risk uh, investment will uh, give you a high return a low risk investment will give you a lower return right so today's topic is uh, providence investment philosophy so um, who better than you to share what this philosophy is and what underpins this philosophy? 
So let's begin with the four pillars to Providence Investment Framework. So Chaisen, what are these four pillars and could you briefly describe each of them? Yeah, so the four pillars are economic contribution, empirical evidence, implementation, and practical consideration. So going deeper into each one, um, first of all, economic contribution. So when we think about investing or an investment asset, there has to be a, an economic rationale for the return that you're getting. So for example, um, a simple one is stocks. Right? What are stocks? They are an ownership stake in a company. Right? If you own equity in a company, you really own part of that company. So if you own part of that company, if it does a business, uh, whatever it is, selling goods and services, you would expect a return because right. the company will operate and sell goods and services. However, if you um, went in, uh, invested in something that had no uh, economic specific economic rationale for return say um, I guess a recent example might be uh, cryptocurrency and I know you know there are a lot of crypto fans out there but I mean this is just uh, I mean cryptocurrency doesn't really have an uh, economic return it's a sort of it's like a currency right currencies technically uh, don't uh, really give you a economic return they're more of a store of value right. so the the I guess rise and fall in the value of cryptocurrency is uh, more is less based on uh, economic rationale, but basically demand and supply from people who are interested in buying and selling that cryptocurrency. So, so that would be something that uh, probably wouldn't check that box on economic contribution. Uh, and the next one is um, empirical evidence. So, I mean, it, it, that's just what it, it is <laughs> on the, the label. Yeah, we just data, yeah. that's right. We just want to see that there is uh, data around this uh, investment strategy or asset or style that shows that there's some consistency for this return. That there's some long term kind of uh, consistency around the return. It's uh, I mean, you could have a great investment uh, strategy or uh, some kind of um, opportunity. But if there was no data around it to prove that this strategy or, or this investment style works, then it would be hard for us to also get extremely comfortable with it. So basically empirical evidence means we just want to see some data around um, an investment opportunity and what it entails. Uh, next step is uh, implementation where we look at uh, how this can be implemented in our portfolios. Uh, things that we think about is cost, uh, accessibility, and uh, whether or not um, the asset will will fit into the portfolios uh, well. So these are the implementation kind of considerations. But a big one definitely is uh, cost effectiveness. Cost. Yeah, we try to make sure that. Uh, however, whenever we're implementing something in the portfolio, um, it's not just about the cost of the the fund or the investment instrument, but also uh, trading costs. You know, uh, other kind of fees that a client might have to pay to access that. So, so we do consider costs quite uh, heavily. And lastly, um, practical considerations is uh, we understand that. Um, every client's experience is unique. Every client's position is different. So we try to take into account uh, the client's uh, unique circumstances when 
making recommendations or uh, trying to craft the investment solution for the client. Right. So going deeper on to this, um, you know, you gave an example of crypto being a rejected instrument. And earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that uh, stocks, for example, is something that is accepted. So let's go deeper into that. So let's say we are analyzing uh, crypto. So in the past two years, you know, there's a lot of interest in, oh, Provident, why, why don't you have um, crypto in your portfolios? Uh, crypto has been doing really well. Um, you know, are we, you know, the clients will ask like, are we missing out? So using this framework, um, you've mentioned that, oh, you know, crypto uh, don't really have uh, economic contribution because it's essentially a, a currency. But, you know, so in terms of an accepted instrument, like why is stocks an accepted instrument then? Yep. Good question. So, yeah, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, for a few reasons, uh, stocks are, there's an economic rationale yeah. for having a return on stocks. First of all, you are taking the risk of owning a business. So to invest in a business, you expect a certain return. I mean, it's you, you can just think about it simply like, um, say you open the cafe or a restaurant in Singapore and you're investing in that. A stake in a restaurant, what does that mean? You get a share of the profits. You also take a burden of the losses as an equity holder. So if your restaurant made $10,000 a month net profit, if you were a 20% shareholder, you would be expecting you know, at least $2,000 a month in terms of your return every month right? as a shareholder of the business. So it's the same uh, owning a stake in any company uh, through equity you would expect a certain return from uh, the business if it's profitable. Right. So it's like behaviorally as well, you know, like if let's say the value of crypto falls, like it has the past year, um, that's when people start to reach for reasons to hold. Like, oh, you know, what, what, what's the intrinsic value of what I'm holding, you know? Whereas if let's say you own a business, um, let's say you own McDonald's, right? And you see that the, let's say the share price has fallen, but when you go out there, you still see, you know, McDonald's is still fundamentally still quite sound. So behaviorally, it's also a lot easier for you to hold on to your investment and tide through whatever volatility there might be. Uh, yeah, definitely. You can think of it that way. I think that's a good way because um, I think one example that I've heard uh, used previously is um, there was a manager and they were uh, an advisor and they were meeting clients during the great financial crisis uh, back in 08 and clients were worried. I mean, that time, you know, stocks were down 50%. But, um, you know, they were sitting in a meeting room and just uh, across the road was a Starbucks and, you know, every five minutes, they just saw people walking out of the Starbucks holding a cup of coffee. What does that mean? I mean, even though the stocks are down, but that business across the street, Starbucks is still operating. And so that gives you a, there's a reason why there's a value to that business. I mean, the market can price, um, uh, price in a lot of risk or short-term information. But, you know, if you look at it uh, down to the fundamentals, when you are holding a stock, I mean, that's, that's what it entails. So I guess, you know, even recently when there's, last year when there's been a lot of, um, uncertainty in the market. I mean, we're all still 
using lots of goods and services from various companies that uh, you know we hold in our portfolios which are very diversified so you know that's one way we try and encourage clients that uh, to help them understand that we are investing in businesses for the long term and I guess for other reasons like um, stocks as you uh, we are talking about uh, it empirical evidence if you look at um, stocks over the long term uh, there has been a positive expected return for holding stocks I mean the, the return on stocks is uh, over time, on average, is higher than the return on holding uh, cash, right? holding three-month T-bills or holding uh, six-month T-bills even. So, you know, that shows you that, you know, there is a equity premium, I guess you call it, from the data and that you can expect a return that's higher by holding stocks because um, there is a risk involved, much riskier than holding, uh, you know, a T-bill, right? So you definitely have to get a higher return for that over time. If not, there will be no investors in companies. Everybody will be 100% in T-bills if, if that weren't the case. So we have, you know, very stringent, uh, you know, we stick to this framework very uh, stringently. Um, so we, as of today, we have stocks and bonds in our portfolios. Is that something that can change in the future? Are we, you know, open to more instruments in the future? Uh, I think we are always considering what's out there. Uh, I mean, we we definitely uh, thought about things like crypto, where especially when you know it was uh, doing extremely uh, well. Uh, we have also considered things like alternatives, uh, uh, things like private equity, hedge funds, etc. So we are always keeping an eye out for you know opportunities to improve our portfolios or to improve the client's investment experience. But I think uh, in terms of something that we can put into our model portfolios comfortably, uh, stocks and bonds still form the, the basis of it. And uh, most of these other things that we have considered might really only be for uh, unique cases because we don't just consider uh, just purely the investment return to the client, but we are first and foremost wealth advisors and planners. So we consider the client's uh, needs and goals and circumstances also uh, when we craft a solution for the client. You mentioned that um, you know the client's needs. In investing terms, like need for return is something that uh, really ties in with the philosophy of sufficiency. So in terms of investing, could you explain the concept of enough? Um, I guess having enough return for a client would be the return that can help the client achieve their life goals um, in the most, I guess, comfortable, stress-free <laughs> manner. <laughs> okay, so in the past, a few years, there's a lot of inquiries about leveraged investments and leveraged annuities. So at Provident, when a client asks like, oh, can I leverage up my investments? And typically you would tell the client like, you know, it's, it's, it's not really necessary. So what is our take on leveraged investments or leveraging up your investments? Well, leverage uh, is a tool I mean, and so all tools have to be used for the right purpose. Um, I guess it's for investing in uh, things like stocks and bonds. Uh, we generally would 
advise the client to avoid leverage unless they you know absolutely can handle the risk because uh, while on paper the returns look great if you leverage uh, what most um, models fail to show you is sort of the emotional impact of getting a margin call because uh, if, it would, if, it, if it all just keeps going up, that's great. But then once the value of your investment falls, if you're under le- some kind of leverage, then you would have to top up with a margin call and that can uh, detract from your, I guess, ability to meet your future uh, life goals. So in terms of being uh, able to reach your life goals comfortably, um, like at Provident, we think a bit uh, we recommend to clients that they should try and um, adjust their expectations so that they do not need to really take on leverage to uh, achieve their financial goals. So that, I mean, in the event of any market downturn or fall in asset prices, uh, they can hold their investments without the stress of having to deal with margin calls. Right. I believe there was a study done by uh, Yale. Yale University that says like if you are young you, you can take 2x leverage and, and and just stick to it if you get margin call you get wiped out you know the next day you just uh, uh, invest again and empirically you know you can you can show like oh in the end when you reach retirement you're likely to have a lot more money than uh, other people but behaviorally that is a bit Crazy, right? I mean, imagine like you've been investing for a few years, you get wiped out and to have the, the stomach to start again, um, you know, the next day is, is, is a bit crazy. So a lot of people, um, when they are doing an analysis, they fail to realize the human aspect of uh, investing. So at Provident, we believe that tilting towards certain factors such as smaller size companies and value stocks will give a higher expected return in the long run. So why don't we have a portfolio that goes all in into small cap value? So let's say I have a long runway, like let's say 20 years, and I want to get the most I can for my retirement. So wouldn't it make sense to go all in into small cap value since it's empirically sound and there's a lot of academic research about it? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think Isaac, you can have such a portfolio. 100% 100% small cap value. You have the time frame and you understand the, the risks involved uh, working you know, closely with all of us at Provident. Um, but yes, I guess why we don't do that is because uh, while it does give you the best return over time, uh, the volatility of that return is extremely high uh, as you would expect because you're talking about uh, value stocks that are uh, priced cheaper because the companies might not be doing uh, as well uh, in the current business environment or you would have uh, small caps which are also always uh, highly volatile because of the much larger uncertainty around their cash flow. I mean, if you take a big company like Apple, um, you know, it's analyzed by every analysts all over the world Uh, anything that they do you know you know within seconds so there's a lot more certainty around what their future cash flow is going to be so if there's certainty around the cash flow you would expect that there's a a lower risk involved 
so lower um, expected return. While small caps, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around their cash flows. Um, not many people cover them, so you would expect their returns there be higher. But it can also, but you know, that uncertainty also means that there can be returns that are much lower sometimes. So that volatility would be extremely high. Uh, to give you an example, you would be have running a standard deviation of probably maybe 25% if you were running that kind of portfolio. Yeah, so as compared to, let's say, a market cap weighted index, so uh, standard deviation of 25 for small cap value, what is a typical standard deviation for, let's say, a market cap index? Yeah, I think you would be coming in at uh, maybe somewhere between 16 to 20% for oh, okay. a large cap you know, uh, index. But um, so you would, yeah, you would be getting a lot more volatility. Uh, what that means is in one year, you know, if you would expect to get 12% return on small caps, this is just an example, uh, throwing numbers out there, you, you would be 12% plus minus 25 or something like that. So you would have a huge variation in your returns. And uh, that's not something that I think uh, clients at Pro of Providence Profile can easily uh, take because the you know a large part of uh, capturing investment returns is about being able to stay invested in the portfolio long enough for you to get the returns right and most of the time they they don't really need that kind of returns i mean uh, based on the philosophy of sufficiency most of the time 100% uh, equity and you know with a mix of, of bonds uh is enough for them lah yeah. uh yes so that, that's the other part. So one part is, you know, you need to be invested to be able to capture the returns that uh, you would get from the asset class. Then the other part would be uh, recommending something to a client that is suitable. Like, do they really need this high return? Because, uh, yes, as you mentioned, um, a lot of clients that uh, come to Provident generally are more focused on uh, wealth preservation um, and they are not looking to invest or to work with Provident to achieve the highest return possible because uh, they are coming to us for to plan out uh, their life goals and their wealth plans. So, so uh, yeah, putting our clients into something that is much more volatile does not necessarily mean uh, it's suitable for them. Okay, so let's move on to this huge debate in the investing space, active versus passive. Right, so according to the Spiva study, which is a long-term study comparing uh, active, actively managed funds and passive index, uh, over a 10-year period, more than 90% of actively managed funds in the US underperform the index. So how do we think about this debate? I think we we can just see from the data that uh, it's very hard to be consistent when you are running an actively managed uh, strategy. So there, there are managers out there that do it fairly consistently, uh, but you would have to um, firstly uh, pick the right managers. And then the second thing about managers that run active strategies consistently uh, and do it well is their fees are typically higher because um, well 
if you think about it, the from an economic standpoint, um, the scarce resource is the manager, right? The, their skill in being able to actively manage this portfolio and beat the market consistently. So you would be, you know, if the resource is scarce, the price you pay for the resource would be higher. So you would definitely uh, be expecting slightly higher fees uh, on the active side. So, so at Provident, we, we try to be more uh, consistent in terms of how we get our returns for the client. And so we prefer to just be more on the passive or index side so that uh, we can take away this um, added layer of uh, uncertainty around like, having to uh, ensure that the managers that we work with uh, are consistently delivering better than market returns because that's the, that's the reason why you would want to go with an active manager. You want uh, higher than market returns. But if you are comfortable with the market returns, then you know going with a passive strategy uh, can be more suitable. Okay, so let me put you on the spot here. So um, Dimensional is one of the fund managers that we use. Uh, and Dimensional, they are actually active managers. right? So based on what you, you shared, uh, we are leaning towards the more passive side. Uh, but why do we invest into Dimensional funds in that case? That's a very good question. We use Dimensional because uh, even though they are active, uh, the way they invest is uh, they don't do forecasting and they are running a very systematic strategy. And so uh, you can have active managers that run a systematic strategy that does not involve forecasting, then at least the returns or the results can be consistent. When we know, uh, well, Dimensional, they run a strategy that systematically tilts towards value stocks and small cap stocks. That means um, they, despite whatever the news is out there or whatever the world is doing, um, their strategy will always uh, buy slightly more value stocks and small cap stocks based on their, uh, the criteria that they define these stocks, which they do, of course, explain to uh, clients and investors. So being uh, able to understand that the managers uh, moving in a systematic way, uh, it, their results are very consistent and more predictable. If you see value stocks do badly, you can easily expect that Dimensional will not do better than the market. Uh, if you see value stocks do well, then you expect that Dimensional strategies would do better than the market, which they do. So that's the reason why we are comfortable using them, uh, even though they are an active strategy. So moving on to diversification and more specifically global diversification. So many people believe that investing in US equities via um, an S&P 500 index or a US total market index would provide enough diversification. So barring the past year, US equities have been significantly outperforming global equities for over a decade, or rather a decade. One of the most common arguments is that oh, US companies already receive a large part of their revenues from companies all over the world. I mean, we have Apple stores in Singapore, we have McDonald's everywhere. So why do we still globally diversify our portfolios in that case? Well, simply 
The answer is we globally diversify because we are not certain that the US stocks will always be the best performing stocks in every single period of time. And so when you globally diversify, you can at least ensure that whichever stock market, whichever stocks are doing better in any period of time, you are going to have exposure to that. And for example, right now, uh, we see emerging markets outperform uh, US stocks and even uh, European stocks are generally uh, more favored right now by investors compared to US stocks uh, because uh, valuations are just much higher in the US right now. So if we weren't globally diversified, we might not be in the better performing parts of the market uh, right now. If you just go back, um, a decade prior to the last decade in the 2000s uh, i mean emerging markets were doing extremely well and the uh, u.s stocks were the s p 500 was flat and for i think seven or eight years so uh, not every period uh, will be good for each country so being diversified lets you make uh, ensures that you have exposure to the best performing stocks of any period Right, so that will lead to more reliable returns in that case. So if let's say we make a bet on a certain country, and of course if it does well, we'll definitely get a lot higher returns. Uh, but in terms of investing for a certain goal, we want the most reliable uh, return. So not necessarily the highest return. So would global diversification help in getting a more reliable return in that case? Yeah, you, I mean, you bring up a good point. We are, I guess you can say we're not active managers at Provident. We're not uh, chopping and changing our portfolios every few months to try and uh, capture the uh, latest trend or the latest macro call. Um, we, we also don't really have that kind of capability to do so effectively. So we don't so we create tailor our strategy to make sure that the return is consistent and so uh, yes being globally diversified um, helps you get a consistent return because you will be owning the best performing stocks of any time period like just for example you don't even need to look at global diversification uh, just saw recently that um, 90% of this year's S&P 500 return that means January to and March is due to 20 stocks in the S&P 500. So if you're not diversified, if you were picking one stocks or two stocks here and then you missed out on these, you would be losing a lot of return. Of course, if you got it right, if you could have a crystal ball and just pick those 20 stocks, you would, you would look like a, a genius, know, a genius yeah. but yeah, you would, uh, how, how often, how consistently can you do that? So to make sure that, you know, we are going to, be owning those 20 stocks no matter what we are diversified so that the clients will get a consistent return right okay so uh, that's all for this week's episode thank you so much again Chai Sen. thanks Isaac so to all our listeners I hope you enjoyed our discussion on Providence investment philosophy if you like this episode please follow our podcast and follow us on social media for similar content as always Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. 
All analysis, views or opinions from interviews, recommendations and other information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein are provided for general information purposes only. Information expressed does not take into account any specific situation, particular needs or objectives and should not be construed as specific advice or a recommendation. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal or tax professional before taking any action. Provident Limited does not accept any liability for any loss whatsoever arising from any of use of the information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein. All contents and information contained herein may not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part by any means without prior written consent of Provident Limited.